Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Ingrid Passaud on her debut novel, Love After Love. Born in Trinidad, Ingrid Passaud won the Commonwealth Short Story Prize in 2017 and the BBC Short Story Award in 2018. She read law at the LSE and was a legal academic before taking degrees in fine art at Goldsmiths and Central St Martins. Her writing has appeared in Granta, Prospect and Pre-Magazines and today we're going to be talking about Ingrid's debut novel, Love After Love. Ingrid, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. First of all, how would you describe the novel? The novel is a story of an unconventional family, uh, Betty a Widow, her son Solo, and their lodger, Mr. Chaitan. And it's set in Trinidad, and it follows this family's breaking apart because of a terrible secret that's revealed, and how they might find each other again, or their own individual redemption. And you mentioned the three main characters. They're also the three narrators of the story. Tell me about why you wanted to tell it from the three different perspectives. Each is on a particular journey that involves both their journey within their community and to themselves in finding themselves and learning to love themselves. And because it was such an intimate understanding of each person, I felt there was no other way than to tell it in their own voices. And the first person narrator seemed most appropriate. So I did. I used three narrators and they tell the story in alternating chapters, roughly. As I said, there are three characters, two men and, and one woman. And, you know, the most surprising thing was that it was the woman's voice that was the most difficult for me, not the male voices. Do you know why? I was going to talk to you about because they are three very distinct voices. You have you have created three very vivid characters here. And I'll be interested to know why you found Betty the most difficult then. I think women often have to project themselves into positions or places that they want to be, that they aspire to be, that they've been cut off from or excluded in some way. And so we are always imagining and putting ourselves in these positions. So to be a teenage boy 
or a young gay man. I didn't find that as difficult as being a middle-aged woman searching for herself. So isn't that ironic that it's when I go to myself that, you know, it's, it's the hardest to do. I want to talk about the, the three characters in turn a little bit closer. Before we do, could you tell us something about Trinidad? So they're living together at the beginning of the story in a house, not in Port of Spain, the sort of main city, but outside. And tell us what, tell us what their house and where they're living is like, I guess. So Love After Love is very much a love story to Trinidad, a love letter to Trinidad in many, many ways. And it's set in the second largest city in Trinidad, San Fernando, and that's where I grew up. So again, a little bit of nostalgia of putting it there. But the reason I also wanted to put it in a in this smaller city is to show that these are just very ordinary lives that I'm narrating. These are not particularly special people. They have no particular economic, political, social standing. They're just very ordinary lives. And it was the grace and beauty of ordinary lives, I think, that I was exploring. People might not be familiar with the fact that, that Trinidad's, a lot of the people, yourself included, but the characters in the book, some of the characters in the book, have an Indian heritage, um, and, you know, an East Indian heritage rather than a West Indian heritage. Tell me about the makeup of the, the peoples of Trinidad. So after slavery was abolished, people were brought in as indentured labourers from various parts of the world, but primarily from India. And they came from two provinces, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. And those are two very, very poor areas in India. And these people crossed what they call the Dark Sea and came to the Caribbean. So they were really not much better off than the slaves that uh, labor that they had replaced. And they makeup of the countries is almost sort of the population split almost evenly between blacks and Indians. And then there's a small percentage of Chinese, Middle Eastern, Caucasian, other people. But I just want to bring up just something in in your comment, you said, you know, you're Indian as opposed to West Indian. I am most definitely West Indian. I am, you know, as much West Indian as anyone else, because we are a melting pot of people in Trinidad. Well, I was going to say, what what has that meant for Trinidad itself and as a country in terms of the you know the sort of socio-political nature of the country? When I was growing up and oil money was flowing there was a fair amount of harmony I would say. I certainly didn't understand racism and I didn't understand that I was somehow different until I came to London. And this is where I learned about racism. But sadly, as economic prosperity has declined, racism has surfaced and the politicians take um, advantage of that. And so there's a huge amount of strife and tension between the communities now. Let's talk about the, the three characters in turn. And as I said, so so Betty Ramdin, tell us something more about who she is. So Betty is a feisty woman, a strong woman, and she is a victim of domestic abuse. You find that out in the very first chapter. But I, I do it in the first chapter just to really get rid of it, because I don't, 
I didn't want her to be defined as a victim. And she isn't. This is about life beyond abuse. And she, in her own way, you know, really seeks to be her best self. And she tries different paths, religion, romance. And what we see at the end is really goes back, I think, to the title of the novel, Love After Love, which comes from the Derek Walcott poem. And that Derek Walcott poem talks about love of the self as the start of any journey. And for Betty, her story is a story of finding out how she might love herself. Well, when you said, it's interesting, because when you said that you found the reasons you talked about finding Betty the most difficult to write, I immediately went back to thinking about her, you know, as a survivor of domestic violence, not a victim, but just this sense that domestic violence in her society is something that she is supposed to not talk about, you know what I mean? Internalize, just suck up as part of as part of a marriage. And indeed, it said as part of a good marriage, even you know, you you know your husband loves you because he hits you. Yes, you know that is a little extreme, and perhaps in Caribbean society we accept more violence against women than than we ought to. But her story is fairly universal. The idea that one shouldn't speak out, that there is great shame involved, that you've brought it on yourself, that it's something to do with you not being good enough, not pretty enough, not a good enough cook, not a good enough lover, whatever it is, but that somehow you're responsible for that, whatever you know happens to you. So uh, Sonil, her husband, uh, her former husband, and Solo's father is dead at the beginning of the book. Uh, he is <laughs> he is, nonetheless, at least to begin with, uh, an extremely strong presence in the book. Tell tell us something about him. He is, um, you know, he's not a character I give enough nuance to. I will say that outright. Too. He's so he doesn't he, deserve nuance. He doesn't deserve nuance. He's he is, you know, he's a thug. He takes out his frustrations in life. You know, there are moments in the book which hint at his background and uh, a failure of parental love, perhaps, in his childhood that might account for some of his violence, but it's never an excuse. It's never offered as an excuse. And, uh, yeah, I didn't... I just didn't want to dwell on him as a person. I didn't feel that he deserved space in my book to either be explored or excused in any way. So let's talk about Solo, so Betty and Sunil's son. There's a a point in the book, um, as you mentioned, we're not going to talk about obviously what happens or give anything away, but there's, there's a point in the book where he finds out this secret and that sort of splits the family apart and... Before that, I want to talk about Solo, first of all, before that incident, as a young boy, before the young man, I guess, which he becomes after that incident. Um, But let's talk about who Solo is before he discovers this secret. I think before that, he is a very charming, sweet child. We meet him interacting with his mother and Mr. Chayton as a very... I think, very normal kid. And we do see him going through the sort of teenage um, monosyllabic phase. But again, 
there's nothing out of the ordinary. He is simply going through the angst of growing up. And so, you know, to me, he's quite an endearing boy at that point. Of course, things get darker for him as he grows older. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ingrid Persaud and we're talking about her debut novel, Love After Love. And Ingrid, we before the break, we were talking about Solo and his life as, you know, a a very young man, a boy, before he finds out this this secret. Afterwards, he he basically runs away to New York to to his uncle Harry's house. And I love the way that, to begin with, when he first gets to New York, he's shocked to discover that the life that his uncle is living in New York is nowhere near as nice as the life that they were living in Trinidad. <laughs> yes, you know, it's... It's the, the, you know, the grass always green on the other side. And, and the idea of New York, I think, you know, of all the cities in America, that's the emblem of where you can make it. And to go and find that actually your little island life was of a much higher quality than what you're going to find in this place where supposedly all your dreams come true. And poor thing, you know, he... He has almost no words to describe the landscape. He He's just utterly confounded by what he finds. 
And so he basically, again, we're not going to talk about too much about what happens, but his story becomes one of this sort of like eternal hunt for a, a social security number so he can work and, you know, basically the world of of illegal immigration. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about the process of researching that side of the story. I was very fortunate that people who've gone through this process were willing to speak to me as well as you know, the normal channels of looking at research done by sociologists, you know, over time. So I hope that the story I tell has some sense of authenticity in that it is it is not one person's particular story I'm telling, but some sort of amalgamation of the stories I've been told of how an outsider finds legitimacy in American society. Let's talk about Mr. Chetan, who is, I mean, perhaps he's travelled as well, he's, he's better educated, he's working as a teacher, and he basically comes to Betty at the beginning of the book um, as a lodger, and quickly this deep friendship develops, and also this fatherly love develops between himself and Solo. Tell us something about Mr. Chetan and who he is. So Mr. Chetan is just the most wonderful character. I mean, I was in love with him for the entire book. Um, he's he's just a delightful man, just, you know, incredibly solid person with a lot of empathy, a lot of faults, like all of us. So he's, he's not, you know, some terribly goody two-shoes character, but he has such a big heart. And um, his challenge is that he cannot accept his own sexuality. And his reasons are both internal and external in that homosexuality is not completely decriminalized in Trinidad. We had a historic decision in 2018 that um, said the laws on um, criminalization of homosexuality should be repealed. The state is appealing that decision. So while we are making strides in Trinidad as a society, it remains something that is difficult to, if if you belong to the queer community, you know, I think you have good reason to be afraid. You have good reason to be sad at the various religious leaders and their lack of ability to stand up for the human rights of the queer community. And indeed, the violence against the queer community is, you know, it's, I don't think it's necessarily the worst in the world, but it is very present. And of course, there's got to be a different situation. I mean, you talk about this in the book. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of alluded to that, you know, the life of a queer person in, in Port of Spain would be one thing, but to somebody who's living, you know, outside in the sort of yeah. hinterlands, um, what would the, the sort of, again, it's, it's, it's one thing for the, you know, for the law of the country to say one thing, but, you know, locally, socially, what would attitudes to homosexuality be like? So the law can um, lead a change, but the law can't create the change. And attitudes lag behind. There's appalling homophobia. And you read it, it comes very casually, both from the pulpit and the press and politicians. I'm always astounded, you know, when I move between a place as tolerant as, as London to Trinidad, 
And I, I feel I travel 50 years over those 4,000 miles in terms of acceptability, uh, protection of rights. And I put them in those terms because it is about rejecting the rights of a sector of our community. There's nothing more or less than that. You are not accepting the human rights of your fellow man. There's an absolutely terrible scene earlier, early on in the book where Mr. Chetton, you know, thinks back to his childhood and how he was rejected by his own parents. And th- that was a very difficult scene to write. You know, I kind of wrote it barely looking at, at the page because that sort of rejection is, is just far too common. And if you've had that experience, then, you know, the stakes of coming out are even higher. Ultimately, though, the book is about love i want to talk about you know writing about the various forms so there's there's great friendships in the book there's you know there are lovers there's the love of a a mother for her child let's talk about all those different ideas of love that you explore in the book so the title might if you don't know anything about the book you might think love after love is going to be a bit of romance and it is absolutely not a book about romance. And indeed, one of the things I hope comes through in the book is that we perhaps privilege romantic love to an extent that that it may not warrant in that the bonds of other types of love, friendship, familial love, is to be celebrated far more than, than we currently do. I should say, though, also, there is romantic love, and you write brilliantly. It's, it's quite, you know, the book's quite sexy at some points. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm horrified, of course, that, you know, my mother is going to read some of the scenes <laughs> that I've written. And, um, in fact, I got a note today from a friend, and she said that she loved the sound of the book, and so she had bought one for herself and had one sent to her mother straight away. And she was now reading the book and very sorry that she had sent it (laughs) to her mother. And so was I. (laughs) And, um, you know, she asked, how do you know these things? And I said, well, I wouldn't look too closely at my search history, that's for sure. You mentioned uh, that the title comes from the the Derek Walcott poem. I wanted to talk about um, other writers that might have been an influence on the book. Different writers, I think, appeal to you at different times in your life and they provide different things at different times. So when I'm looking for craft of a particular type, I might look at V.S. Naipaul. If I'm thinking of voice, particularly in the twangs of the Trini voice, I can find nothing better than Sam Selvin's, you know, Lonely Londoners. So these are the sorts of works that I look at. I'm always inspired reading Derek Walcott's poetry and the poetry of contemporary Caribbean poets like Kai Miller, whose work I absolutely adore. I'm always, you know, and I'm always reading and I'm always thinking what I can learn from, you know, those who have gone before. Can I get you to to read us a little bit of Love After Love? 
Sure. So I'm going to read from the beginning of the book. I'll read two extracts. The first extract is an interaction between Betty and her husband, Sunil. And then the second extract is where Mr. Chetan moves in with Betty and Solo. So, in tutus, I dished out the stew chicken, vegetable rice, and green salad. Sunil used the fork like it was a shovel. When he's like this, anything can become an argument, and any argument can become a fight. Like salt, chief. But I hardly put salt in the food. He rocked back in his chair. If looks could kill. You telling me you cooked this chicken and didn't put one set of salt in the pot? Silence. So what I taste in? Something must be wrong with my mouth. How I taste in salt soup? You know my pressure high and you giving me salt? Like you want to kill me? I'd left the rolling pin on the drain board. Easy reach of Sunil's chair. That rolling pin might have hit the wall or the bed or the chair, but it found me. Doctor said the ulna and the radius snapped in two. My arm was in a cast when we buried Sunil a week later. At the funeral, I told people it was no big deal. I must stop being so careless with ladders. But I talk half and left half. People used to look at me and Sunil and say, Betty Gill? You're real lucky. In my head, I wanted to ask if they're making joke. Lucky? That man only gave love you could feel. He cough you down? Honeymoon. He give you a black eye? True love in your tail. He break your hand? A love letter. He put you in hospital for a week? Love will stay the course. He take a knife and stab your leg? Until death. Do us part. The next bit is in Mr. Cheaton's voice. Miss Betty declared she was leaving the gentleman to sort out everything and going to take her five minutes. Solo put himself in charge of settling me into the house. I was trying to unpack, but the boy kept calling me. Could he show me his room? Two minutes later, he wanted to explain how to operate the TV. I had barely packed a drawer when he demanded I inspect the kitchen. What to do? He was only being friendly. Solo showed me everything, down to turning on the water heater if there wasn't enough hot water in the pipe. He was a completely different child from the morning they had stopped to give me a drop. A right little chatterbox. Mr. Chetan, is that the last box you're bringing up? Yes, you stay. There's nothing else to bring. Ouch. Oh, geez and peace, that hurt. I had stumped my so-and-so too on the sharp edge of the concrete step. Books tumbled out the box I was carrying. A torch light went clanking down the steps. Solo rushed to help. You're all right, Mr. Chetan, you're all right? My toe, damn. That nail going to turn blue. I hit it and then the torch dropped on top of it. The boy ran after the torch and scooped up the books. You want ice to put on your toe? Don't worry, I'll manage. These steps are very dangerous. My daddy fell down these same steps and died right here. For true? Right here? I don't remember anything because I was small, but I know he fell down. I'm sorry. Sometimes he used to drink, get drunk, and fall down. You mustn't say that about your father. 
But Mammy told me that happened. I hoped Miss Betty wasn't listening. Her window was open, so unless she was sleeping hard, she must have heard. Children these days. I'm sure your father was a good man. Just please be very, very, very careful on the steps, okay? Especially if you come home drunk. You're not going to see me drunk. I take my carib or a stag now and then, but I'm not a drinker. And Solo, you must be careful on this step too. If I knew about your daddy's accident, I wouldn't have let you run up and down with boxes. I'm accustomed to these steps. Nothing will happen to me. He bent down and picked up a large plastic bag. A boy in my class said he'd as teeth carry beer from the fridge and drink it in the backyard. I hope you never do that. Mammy said that is the one thing she will give me licks for. I can do anything but that. It took the both of us till evening to put everything in place. Of course, I could have done it a lot faster, but Solo refused to leave my side. I didn't mind, and although this boy's blabbing nonstop, half the time he's muttering to himself. At dinner, Miss Betty acted like she hadn't heard what Solo said about his father. Still, it bothered me. People like to run their mouth, especially when it has nothing to do with them. No, I wouldn't want that for these two. About half past eight, I asked Solo, please, let's knock off for the day. What wasn't put away could wait. Solo, you can help me again, but not too early. It's Sunday tomorrow. Okay, I won't come in your room and wake you up then. Before you go, come, let me whisper something in your ears. He smiled and came close. You mustn't go around telling people that your father used to drink. It doesn't sound nice, especially since he's passed, and it will make your mummy cry. He leaned into my ear and whispered back, My mummy wouldn't cry for that. So I've been talking to Ingrid Persaud. We've been talking about her debut novel, Love After Love, which is out now in the UK from Faber. Ingrid, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much, Neil, for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.